Now, welcome back to our uh, Endoscopy News podcast. Today, we have Roland Valori to explain to us about uh, post-colonoscopic rectal cancer and the new audit tool, which has been launched in September to try to get to grips with this issue. Thanks as well to our sponsor at Pendex Medical for supporting the podcast. So, Roland, thanks for taking your time out to talk about uh, post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer audit tool, uh, which is due to be launched. I don't really know the background to, I know the background to post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer, but the audit tool. Well, I think the first thing to say is that uh, we've been recognizing, as you know, for 10 years that this is a, a problem and that, you know, there's something that we need to sort out. And the JAG and the BSG have recommended to services that they both identify cases and audit them to look for learning. And the World Endoscopy Organization, in our consensus statement published uh, two years ago, recommended the same. The problem is finding these cases. The problem is because the uh, cancer is appearing months or often years after the procedure, and people don't link the two. So the first problem is finding the cases. The second problem is that people are not always sure, sure what they need to be looking for. And the WO made some recommendations and we published a paper based on a review of 100 odd cases using those recommendations. But what we found was there's some things that they hadn't considered. And the audit tool is designed to steer people through all the possible reasons for the cancer appearing late and that reduces the chance of them missing something obvious. So there are two things that the system does. One is it finds the cases for the trust or the hospital, and they don't need to go looking for them. And it will find cases that are diagnosed in other hospitals. So if you do a colonoscopy in Leeds, and the cancer is found in Birmingham or London, then we'll still flag it up. And we know that in conurbations, about 20% of cancers are diagnosed in another hospital or trust. So you'll be missing 20% if you look at just the Leeds uh, databases. So we find the cases and we give people a template to work through. So we're making the job easier. And at the same time, we hope to gather collected information because there aren't many of these cases at the end of the day for each trust and we will get collected information and we'll be able to draw stronger conclusions about the reasons for these cancers. So three reasons, we find the cases, we've got an audit tool that uh, considers all the issues and we can collect national data and make recommendations to improve services in the, in the future. So in a, in a medium-sized unit, say a little bit smaller than Leeds, 500,000 population, how? How many post-colonoscopy colorectal cancers would you expect uh, to pop up every year? It depends on the time frame you're looking at, because obviously a longer time frame, there are more cases pop up. For the purposes of the audit, and based on the time frame of the World Endoscopy Organization, we've chosen four years. So in a four-year period, post-colonoscopy, that's actually six months to four years, because we, we ignore anything in the first six months, any cancers appearing six to 48 months after a colonoscopy in the country, there's 1,400 of those cases a year. 
and there are about 150 trusts. So um, we're probably looking at um, 10 cases per per trust. But it depends a bit on how much colonoscopy you're doing, how much of your cancer is being diagnosed by colonoscopy, how many of your population have colonoscopy. In our unit, we we do hardly any CTC. If you're doing a lot of CTC and making the diagnosis of CTC, you'll have fewer cases. So my organisation uh, is a bit bigger than a half, a, half a million population. We're quite a big trust. We'll have about 20 to 25 cases a year. And, and when will the audit start? So the plan is to uh, go nationally in September. We've done a pilot. We've tested the portal. We've made some changes. Um, we've, uh, we plan to start in September. And, and did I hear you right? You, the post-colonoscopic colorectal cancer in my, it, I always thought was up to three years after your colonoscopy, but you're extending it to four years. One of the key pieces of work we did about eight years ago um, with Eva Morris was we showed that if you use different methodologies to calculate the rate, you get wildly different rates, anywhere between 2% and 8% using the same data set. So that's the first thing. And we urged the, the WO to define the methodology so we could benchmark rates. We could compare apples with apples, not apples with pears. So the benchmark rate has to be defined in both the time frame and all the other variables that go into the calculation. The benchmark rate is for three years. So for benchmarking purpose, we use the three-year rate. For the audit, we use four years. And to a certain extent, that was arbitrary. But it stems from the WO saying that anything over four years is likely to be a new cancer, which we English didn't believe, but that was what was agreed. So um, if it occurs within four years, the most plausible explanation is that it was missed. So for the purposes of auditing, which is quite different from benchmarking, we've chosen the four-year period. So the audit will start in September. So it will then roll for four years, finish in 2025? No, no. So the, the idea is that the audit starts in September and we're feeding each trust a maximum of 25 cases. So they don't get overwhelmed, even if they have more cases for the time period. And the idea uh, is that this won't be a one-off. The idea is that this will be uh, refreshed on a continual basis. So three times a year, Leeds and other hospitals will get an upload of new the new cases. So this will be a continuous thing. And we are looking for money to duplicate this uh, for CTC and also for upper GI endoscopy. So eventually we'll have three platforms. So how will it then work? So so you get a feedback. These are the these are the post colonoscopy colorectal cancer. Who receives that data, and what should that person do with it? So the prime purpose is for the organisations. So this is uh, um, aim, as I've explained, making it easier for them. We find the cases, we give them a template. We expect them to do the learning on the basis of that and make changes which undoubtedly they will need to make. I know for certain that things are not happening as well as they should. And it's not just adenoma detection, as you have articulated before. It's a bunch of other things. 
and they need to get to grips with those things. So it's really basically primarily for the individual hospitals to improve their services. Now, we have a quality assurance body in the form of the JAG. We have a regulator in the form of the CQC. And the regulator is very interested in this because this sort of audit is a proxy of high quality, safe care. So it's just the sort of thing they will look at when they are making um, judgments about hospitals. So they will be interested not in what results are coming out so much as what people are doing and whether they're changing things on the basis of it. The problem uh, is that the sample size is too low to make judgments about the quality of individuals, colonoscopy, and indeed it's on the low side to make a judgment of the quality of colonoscopy in an institution. So really the JAG and the CQC will be looking at whether people are complying with the audit and the second thing, the degree to which they are taking action on the things that they find that are not working properly. So it's primarily for the organisation, but in terms of uh, governance and oversight, we'd be looking to the JAG primarily. Um, but I would, ex well, I know that I have had conversations with the CQC and they are absolutely interested in exactly this sort of thing. This is the sort of proxy information that they would find very valuable. And who will actually, on, on, the, on the show floor kind of basis, who, who will receive the data and what will that person do with it on, on a practical basis? What, what would happen is, uh, say you were in charge of managing this in Leeds, okay? So you, were, you would have, uh, you would audit the cases, enter the data, and the portal would give you an output of that information, a sort of summary output of the key themes. But the key themes are largely qualitative. And I would expect you as the lead to present those key themes to the endoscopy governance meeting. And I would expect the endoscopy governance meeting to decide what needs to be done differently to stop the whatever is happening that shouldn't be happening um, to stop it happening again. So from a practical point of view, it's really just part of the governance process. It's just like dealing with any adverse event. So if you had a safety event reported, uh, say someone died unexpectedly after a procedure, you know, you would want to review that death and why was, should the person have had the procedure and did the procedure contribute to the death? This is the same thing. If I understand you right, what I would do with this data then is look up each post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer, find out the details of what, what happened, discuss it with the quality assurance group. I then need to meet the patient and his family, and, and the endoscopist will need to meet the patient and the family on a, um, because there's a duty of candor, isn't there? The short answer to your question is that we are required to discharge our duty of candor if two things happen. A, whether you have a high degree of certainty that this should not have happened. And B, the patient um, suffered moderate to severe harm. This is different from mammography. So mammography, you can look back at the films. This is different from cervical screening, cytology, biopsy. You can look back at the slides. 
we don't really have a mechanism for looking back at the endoscopy and we only have proxy evidence of quality. Did you reach the cecum? Was the PrEP good? What's the adenoma detection rate of the individual? This is, that's all proxy evidence, not really very good evidence of quality. In our preliminary uh, review of cases, actually, it's quite hard to say that this uh, postcolonoscopy colorectal cancer definitely shouldn't have happened. If, on the other hand, not organising a CTC when a procedure was incomplete and a cancer pops up a year later in a patient with iron deficiency anemia, I would say that that's definitely an avoidable postcolonoscopy colorectal cancer. And if that patient ended up with metastatic disease at two years, you could probably say with some confidence that the patient had sustained moderate harm or severe harm or died as a result of the delay. So that would be an example where duty of candor should be discharged. So in our audit, probably only four or five percent so far of cases was there a definite case for discharging duty of candor. So most of the time, that will not be required. There's some other issues we need to sort out, like if the patient has died or if the patient has cognitive impairment. You know, there's lots of other issues here that we need to think about. And we're in consultation with the lawyers and the duty of candor experts about this. But I don't think services need be worried about this. They are going to be a bit anxious, but I don't think they need to be worried. But this will take resources, won't it? Presumably, a new resources will have to be committed to do this. Okay, so um, I would say that as things are, resources are being consumed by delay in diagnosis. So that, that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is um, when you step on an aeroplane, you wouldn't want your airline to say, well, actually, we we couldn't investigate that near miss because we didn't have the time and the resources. When you step on that aeroplane, you, you want the airline industry to have done everything possible to stop that aeroplane crashing. We don't have the same attitude in healthcare. And I would just see this as a question of priority. So where are our priorities? Are our priorities to deliver safe and effective care? Is our priority to fly an aeroplane and not let it crash. I don't think we've reached that level of priority in healthcare that exists in the airline industry. But having said all that, um, we realise that we're working in a constrained system and the JAG to make space within people's timetables for this have said that they'll no longer require the, set, the eight day readmission audits and the 30 day readmission audits. So there will be some time saving from that. But really, at the end of the day, this is a question of priorities. And if you think about it, delayed diagnosis of cancer here. So there's, there's two things happening. One is, is we're delaying the diagnosis and the patient might need chemotherapy. They might need an abdoperineal resection when they could have had an ESD. That's very expensive. Stomas for life, which they didn't need. But it's very clear that a proportion of these cancers are, are new cancers and that actually uh, a pre-existing lesion was not removed. So it's not just about reducing costs because we have less delay, where we have more 
end-stage cancer. It's about preventing cancer completely. So every polyp we remove that has a cancer in it, there's a great long discussion in the MDT, isn't there? Should the patient have a resection? And there's usually a difference of opinion, and then you have to have a conversation with the patient, and then the patient ends up having a resection, and there's no cancer in the resection mark, you know, and then you think, should we have done it, etc. That's all very time-consuming. If one of those polyp cancers was a post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer, none of that discussion need have happened because the polyp would have been removed a year ago. Or, you know, the resection, looking at your own practice, would have been complete um, as opposed to incomplete. Or the check on the resection would have occurred at six months as opposed to not occurring for 12 months. And we have a recurrence and we can't get rid of it. And then the cancer appears. So there will be savings. So how has this changed your own colonoscopy practice, Roland, would you say? When I was doing the first audit, you know, we monitor our polyp detection rates, don't we? So that's anyway. So while the audit was going on, my polyp detection rate uh, jumped 10%. I was, I was, my polyp detection rate was all very, very high, um, but it went up 10%. I was undoubtedly looking more carefully because I'd had a few cases and I looked back on those cases and I thought, my God, you know, I probably didn't do the procedure as well as I could have done. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, at a more organizational level, we're doing and have done a number of things. So we found from our reviews that people weren't taking adequate sequel photographs. They weren't taking retroflexion photographs in the rectum. We had a couple of low rectal cancers that had obviously just been missed. And had they done a retroflexion, because they hadn't done a retroflexion, we didn't know whether they'd looked at the rectum properly. So we had we actually did a randomised controlled trial of uh, sequel images, uh, an educational um, intervention, and we showed that uh, the educational intervention improved sequel uh, imaging. So we've got we have much better sequel images now, and our our rate of retroflexion is is very high now and we recommend people take two pictures with some rotation for example we are completely reorganizing our surveillance because it's clear from the audit that there are five groups of patients at very high risk of post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer so you know in the covid epidemic the, um, the surveillance list has gone out of control and so what we're doing is we are labeling our patients that fit into that those five categories. So they never get delayed. So, so we know who's there. So if we have another COVID and our waiting times go up, we know we won't let those patients slip. And what are those five groups? So the five groups are HMPCC or Lynch syndrome, LNPCP, so the big polyps you remove. Okay, and we've had discussions about why we see post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer in those patients. Um, and we could discuss that if you want. Uh, there's a small group of patients with colorectal cancer who fit in a very high risk category. And there's quite a big literature on um, rates of metachronous cancer. Um, and it seems there's a small group that are very high risk of developing cancer. So these people usually phenotypically have a lot of big polyps as well as the cancer. And I'm wondering also whether they may have acquired 
um, genetic deficiencies. Okay, so some of the so we're just uh, doing um, genetic testing routinely now. We're rather late to that. That has been a nice requirement, as you know. But I predict that that will um, identify a higher risk group. Uh, third is people with polyposis syndrome, fourth polyposis syndromes. And obviously the final one is IBD. So IBD is a real issue. Um, some might question whether a post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer in a surveillance program for IBD is a success or not. You could regard it as a miss or you could regard it as an early diagnosis of cancer. We know that um, rates of cancer in IBD populations vary. We do have evidence of that. So there's room for improvement there, I think. So within all that, what I'm trying to do, and we haven't quite nailed this, is firstly identify those high-risk groups. That's the first thing. And the second thing is to make sure that those patients have done really, really well. Okay, so if we look at the Lynch syndrome patients, I think they should be like a BCSP colonoscopy. They should have more time allocated. We probably should be looking at 20-minute withdrawals, not 10. Um, for IBD, we need to uh, make sure they're not got inflammation at the time of the procedure. We need to make sure their prep is good. And th these are really big challenges. Um, I mean, how do, you, how do you make sure the patient doesn't have inflammation before they come for their surveillance procedure? That's a big challenge. But there's definitely room for doing things better there. And I see this as largely a process challenge. But there's obviously a quality of colonoscopy, imaging, AI, and various other things that might come into solving the, the problem. So we know from numerous studies, if the average patient has a colonoscopy and say a couple of polyps are removed, they're at a lower than background population risk of dying from bowel cancer for at least 10 years. But yeah. then on the other side of the spectrum, you have patients that we have lots of in leads. We have, we have lots of colitics on a surveillance program. We've got lots of patients with HMPCC. You could say, look, our data in our center looks terrible because we're doing all these high-risk patients that they don't do in, in that hospital over there, over, over the border. And Dr. Foster on the website, don't rate our service very good because we've got a very high rate of post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer. It's not our fault. It's just that we get these five high-risk groups coming to us. So there are several things within that, Bjorn. So I think the first thing is that the problem that we have with the national data sets that we use for benchmarking do not have that detailed information about those high-risk groups. So you are right. So hospitals that um, uh, have large populations of these patients, we can correct for IBD, but we can't correct for the other things. I think we do have to be careful with our benchmarking data. That's the first thing. And I don't think we've been as good as we can be to explain that. The second thing I would say is that it's uh, very clear to me that you don't need a Leeds or a, you know, wherever, some marks to be doing surveillance colonoscopy on Lynch syndrome. They do not need to go to. They, they just need someone to take the time and just look very carefully. I mean, looking carefully is not like doing the sort of things you do, removing gigantic polyps. Um, anybody can look carefully if they take the time to do it, and there's just a few basic things that they have to do to make sure that they're looking at the, the mucosa properly. And I would say the same with IBD. I, 
it's a, a bigger problem, I think, with IBD, because I think there's some subtle things there and techniques of dye spray and everything do require some special expertise. But there's enough IBD in every district general hospital for, I would say, that hospital to have a specialist group of colonoscopists within its hospital doing the surveillance for the IBD patients. I don't think they need to come to Leeds. It's just uh, nonsense. So I think there's something about process, attitude, uh, organisation to get this right. And I'll just say one final thing. You sort of hinted at the outset that, on the other hand, we have this very low-risk population. Um, and I'm very pleased we have new guidelines for that population. We've, we've managed to take at least half the patients off our surveillance list. And I think we are able to reassure them, as you just said, that their risk is lower than anybody else of their age walking around who hasn't had a colonoscopy. So I think we need to, going back to your question about have we got enough time, we need to stop doing the things that aren't really benefiting us and be brave about that and do the things that we can help and do them really, really well. And that means, to, as you say, spending more time doing it. And how will you evaluate the, the audit in the end? Because we'll be compared, I guess, won't we? Well, thank you for asking me that extremely important question. Okay, So the first uh, thing I'd say is that what we're really interested in is stopping this happening. And our own audit, we reckon that at least 85%, you know, there was something happened that could have prevented this delayed diagnosis. But let's say, optimistically, we might get 50%. So what, what we are looking at here on a national basis is reducing the numbers from 1,400 appearing for that four-year interval to 700. So looking at the national rates is one thing. And within that, I would be interested to know whether the rates decline faster in services that comply with this compared to services that don't with the audit. But so that's the most important thing. What's happening? You know, are we reducing these cases? But it will be some time before we get that. So we need a proxy uh, measure. And the proxy measures are, are people participating in the order, for one? Are they finding things that they can improve, too? And are they doing anything about it? And the final thing I'd say is that if it's clear from, you know, we, we can, we'll be getting hundreds, thousands of cases here. If it's clear from those sorts of numbers that there are certain things going wrong systematically, then we can require all the services to correct for that. This is how the airline safety industry works. So they find adverse events and they find what causes those adverse events. And then all of the airlines in the world hear about that and they sort things out to prevent that problem happening again. For rare events, and this is a relatively rare event, we gather nationwide data and that nationwide data can inform services and stop you know, plane crashes in endoscopy. Your prospected aim would be to, to bring the number of post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer down by 85%, but not by 100%. No, no, no. I would, I would say optimistically 50%. You know, I mean, I think that would be a good target. Let's say for, for you know, say the audit, all the learning is occurring now and in 2022, you know, we would expect from colonoscopies done in 2023 that they would have half the rate uh, of cancers. That, that's what one might optimistically say.
Now, there's already some improvement occurring. So it's a question of accelerating that improve, improvement. And at the end of the day, we, we would have to measure ourselves against other countries that aren't doing this and see whether our rate is in, improving faster than their rate. Well, that's the question I was going to ask you. Presumably, the NHS is the first in the world to do this. How about Scotland, uh, Ireland? Are they doing something similar? Or So we're way ahead of the curve. Now, they are talking about doing something similar in Ontario, uh, in Canada. And so we've had some communication with them. And we're having an ongoing discussion with Scotland and, to a lesser degree, Wales. Now, Scotland is planning to have one endoscopy reporting system. And if that happens, then um, potentially this audit could be integrated into that one system. So Scotland's very keen to get to grips with this. Ireland, they have had one or two very high profile uh, episodes of, of cancer appearing after a negative colonoscopy, or at least one, which was in the press. Um, so, and this has generated uh, a massive response in Ireland to try and stop this happening again. But they haven't got anything like this audit system. Um, and looking at this in terms of a SWOT analysis is one of our favorite little approaches to a problem. Uh, if we come to the last one, our threats or problems, are there anything that could go wrong? So I think my main worry, uh, I think that's a completely fair question, is how this lands on the service, if you see what I mean. So inevitably, there will be some pushback. Uh, there's, there'll be some people who say we shouldn't be doing this. A consequence of that is they just tick the box without really doing any learning here, and they hide things. Uh, another consequence of this is it might change behavior uh, in terms of very defensive behavior and make people do all sorts of things they don't need to do so they don't get blamed down the road. So your listeners might like to uh, read a book called Tyranny of Metrics. The thesis of this book is that if you require people to measure things, they start behaving differently. They start gaming in this process, we are not uh, scoring hospitals or anything. We, we, are re we see ourselves as providing them with a process to make something they should be doing easier. But there still may be, you know, some very defensive attitudes in there. People may be less inclined to say a procedure, a repeat procedure is not necessary. So I can, I can see this affecting behavior without really helping patients. That wouldn't be a good outcome. And I guess the audit won't actually capture that data, will it? Say any of the adverse outcomes that you mentioned, we won't actually at the end of the audit know about. I would argue it also the other way. So do I need to repeat this procedure now? So I know from my, my experience of post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer, what factors make it more likely that that person in 2018 had had a colonoscopy that was at risk of a post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer. So if the patient isn't in a high-risk group, you know, if the procedure was done by a high adenoma detector, if there are good images of the cecum and the rectum, and the prep quality was good, I know that the risk of post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer in that patient is very, very low. 
and I, they don't need a repeat colonoscopy. So that won't be that would be one less colonoscopy than would otherwise have been done. And it's the confidence of my knowledge from the audit that makes me not repeat the procedure. And that won't be captured by the audit either. So I think you can argue it either way. You mentioned five high-risk groups, but I would propose to you that there is a sixth high-risk group. And that's the, that's the endoscopist who, who does a large volume of procedures. That person would probably be the most likely, by pure chance, to clock up post-colonoscopy colorectal cancers. And certainly in Leeds, the endoscopists that do the most procedures are the nurses. So it, it will probably rest on the shoulders on these nurses due to candor. You have to, you have to explain to the patient and his relatives that you missed something here. Something should have been done differently. And how many times can you take that hit before you think, actually, I'm sorry, I've had enough? I think that's a completely fair question. And I would throw it back to you and say, well, I think this all boils down to the culture of the unit and how things are handled and how uh, particularly, you know, what's the culture on challenging people who are underperforming or get things wrong. I don't think we do that very well. So if, if I go back to the airline industry, my daughter's father-in-law is a, was a, a 747 pilot. There's no hierarchy in the cockpit. And if somebody has a concern about someone, they just say so. You know, they have a culture of just challenging each other all the time and they accept that and they realize that that's important for safety. So we, we haven't got anywhere close to that in endoscopy. So I would hope that the audit will, will help the, the, the culture progress so that the culture will be more of a formative culture as opposed to a critical culture. Say, well, actually... You know, there was a sequel cancer there. If I look at those photographs of the cecum, I can't see the lawyer's triangle. I can't see that medial wall of the cecum. Can we just discuss why that's not the case and what we can do to, to help you? One other point I'd make is just on the numbers. I mean, I, I think we have to be really, really careful here. You'd have to be probably doing 10,000 colonoscopies or more a year to have a sample size big enough to know that, you know, somebody is underperforming. And I think I would want to look at those nurses' rates of cancer, uh, post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer, in relation to their volume and their case mix. And if you looked at the data from my own audit, I've got several cases in there. And, and that's because I do a lot of colonoscopy, like you say, and I do a lot of the high-risk patients. And some of my colleagues, who you'll know well, who are some of the best colonoscopists in the world, okay, if not the best, you know, they have cases as well. And it's because they're doing a lot of a lot of cases. So I, I think there's something about communicating with the nurses about what this is, if it's, if, you know, if, if it's them you're most concerned about. There's something about the culture. Uh, there's something about us being more comfortable challenging each other and being challenged. Just recognizing that none of us is perfect. I mean, I put my hand up at every meeting and I say, well, look, I have these cases. I'll show pictures of cases that I have missed. You know, one of my BCSP colleagues is very happy for me to show a cancer he missed after he'd spent three quarters of an hour removing an LNPCP. And he had the Roth net full and he didn't see the cancer on the way back. And he's quite happy for me to tell people about that because he thinks it's really important for people to know. So we need that 
culture. And I would hope this audit would improve that culture, would improve the relationship we have with our patients. I think really we are mindful of these things. We've been in communication with ACP GBI, with Neil Cripps as the representative. And at one of our, we have like a governance structure. So we have representatives of the JAG, uh, BSG, ACB, GBI on the governance structure. And he um, made this point that you've made that some of the nurses might find this really difficult. And he recommended that we have a nurse endoscopist representative on our governance group, which we now have. And, you know, we need to do some more work in communications and understanding to lessen the impact of this on that group of people. Because I agree, A, they're important, and B, they're potentially vulnerable. And do you see it, do you foresee a risk of legal challenges triggered by a duty of candor at all? Well, I pose this, so we are, my trust uh, lawyer who specialises in this, she, she advises other trusts and she reckons we're well out of the game on getting this process right, if you like. So she advises other organisations. And she told me that the readiness of organisations across the country is quite varied on, on duty of candor. But I put this question to her and she said, uh, in her experience in the trust, discharging duty of candor rarely led to any um, legal challenge. So what, what people want is, uh, and this is very clear, what people want is honesty and frankness. And most importantly at, uh, of all, for the organization to learn and not make the same mistake. That's what they want. I think one of the particular challenges of this compared to if an operation goes wrong or something is that it's not immediate. Okay, so the real challenge here is that you, you discover this three years down the, the line and you're opening a can of worms that, you know, you say, well, should, is that really helping the patient? Um, that, is a, that is a potential problem. But I, I think litigation... I mean, if this was happening in America, I mean, it would be ridiculous, you know, that that would be a problem. But I don't think that's a problem here. And I've heard that the bowel cancer screening program is also looking at interval cancers. Is is there going to be some sort of overlap between the, the bowel cancer screening program and this audit? Or? So the bowel cancer screening program was about to do what we were doing. Uh, and then as soon as they discovered what we were doing, they immediately said, we do not want to duplicate the work. So let's just make sure that um, you know we do this in collaboration. So we we have been working with them. They do not have the sort of knowledge and expertise we have on the on the portal audit tool. They didn't. They don't have the wherewithal that we have to identify the cases. What they're particularly concerned about is that for bowel cancer screening, a bowel cancer screening center lead. You know, I don't know what it's like in Leeds, but if, if there was a hospital remote from you that was under your jurisdiction, it's the person who's in charge of the centre knowing about the bowel cancer screening case in that other organisation. So it's, it's all a question of weaving it into their quality assurance process, really. And you mentioned earlier in, that, in our conversation about um, radiologists. Of course, they do, certainly in Leeds, they do a lot of CTCs. They could do the same audit, couldn't they? 
The difference, Bjorn, is that they have hard copy, whereas if it's a cancer um, with, you know, inadequate sequel photos, you know, of the cecum, you don't know whether something's missed or not. Well, I guess we could we could video all our um, colonoscopies and gastroscopies, couldn't we? And I know in the Mayo Clinic there's a, a maverick there who's recording all the colonoscopies that are being done. He has a whole floor in a warehouse of servers recording all the thing. <laughs> uh, Bjorn, it would be great, but I, I think it would be a massive task. It would probably consume vast quantities of carbon. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think... Um, I can't see it happening. Interesting, can I just say one other thing? There was a, a case, and, and it was in the public domain, so I can mention it, and it was a Shepton Mallet treatment centre, and a few cancers had been missed. And this is about 12 years ago. You may, you may have been involved in the audit of that, but basically that Shepton Mallet had been storing or recording a DVD on all the colonoscopies. So they paid the JAG some money to review every one of these 1,000 colonoscopies about this particular surgeon and there are all sorts of problems with the colonoscopy very rapid withdrawals and all sorts of stuff so there are precedents of recording um but i can't see it happening really we could take more pictures perhaps couldn't we we could take a picture every five ten seconds uh, and then we'll probably capture a lot <laughs> you you asked me what had changed i mean my vigilance of inspecting the cecum has changed out of all recognition and in particular, that triangle. And I can think of two cases recently. One was a cancer and one was a polyp, which were not visible, you know, and could easily have been missed. And they were just tucked behind the, the valve. And without very assiduous inspection, they would never have been seen. I could have got sequel views and missed the cancer. So to finish, um, how do we find out more about the audit? How do we now get on board? Because September is just around the corner. Okay, so on the BSG website, we've got uh, some further documentation. So if they go on the BSG website, and we have some frequently asked questions on there, and then we're going to provide more information for the BSG and the JAG websites, uh, presentations and things like that. Uh, very shortly, we are going to be the JAG. So the process is going to be, and this is quite important because of GDPR, is the, the JAG is going to write to all the endoscopy leads in the country and ask them to contact our administrator for access to the site. And we are going to ask them to nominate someone, a representative from their organization, who has to contact our admin center. That's the most important thing. And what we have for that person is maybe six or seven materials, uh, information governance, duty of candor stuff, explanation of the audit, draft emails to colleagues. We've got a whole raft of materials ready for them, A, to better understand what they need to do and also to communicate with their teams. And I, I think that we've, we've touched on some really important points in this audit and um, I think we'll expand on those points. Covered a lot of ground, I think, in this, uh, in this chat. Anything that we missed out, do you think? My final word would be to draw you back to the airline industry. Um, I don't think that um, resource-wise, money-wise, or time-wise, this will consume much. <clears throat> the rewards for the patients will be huge. Um, and I, you, know, you would not tolerate 
people saying, oh, we haven't got time for this in the airline industry. You just wouldn't. So why do you tolerate it for healthcare when it's not going to cost a lot of money? I mean, there's no excuse whatsoever. Yeah, thanks, Roland. I think that's a good point to, to finish on. Well, thanks to everyone uh, for listening and uh, thanks to Roland for taking time out to, to speak to us. And finally, a thanks to Pentax Medical for supporting our podcast. I look forward to catching up with you again in a few weeks' time. Bye for now.